Hello and welcome back to the Herbert Smith Freehills Tax Bites podcast, our first podcast for 2024. It has been a while, but there has been a lot happening in tax over the Christmas New Year break. Most notably, we had a decision towards the end of last year in the PepsiCo case, which dealt with the royalty withholding tax issues and the potential application of the diverted profit tax. And joining me to analyse the case today is Associate Geraldine Chan. Hi, Geraldine. Hi, Toby. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, pleasure. Geraldine, you'll be doing the heavy lifting. Uh, <laughs> and also partner Ryan Leslie. Hi, Toby. Great to be back. Okay, so this decision marks uh, a continuation of a process of the ATO in respect of how intangibles are treated. It started back in 2017, 2018, when the ATO released a taxpayer alert relating to embedded royalties. That was followed up with a draft ruling, TD 21D4, relating to uh, royalties and the character of receipts in respect of software. That has now been updated again, and also a PCG in relation to mischaracterization and migration of intellectual property. So the decision in PepsiCo is timely. It goes in the ATO's favour and will give them confidence in the, their pursuit on this matter. To start us off, Geraldine, let's walk through the fact. Sure. Thanks so much, Toby. This is essentially a case about whether PepsiCo and Stokely Van Camp, both being US entities, were liable for royalty withholding tax on payments made under agreements that they had with Schweppes Australia and in the alternative whether the diverted profits tax would apply. And it's an interesting case because it's the first time a court considered the diverted profits tax and the court's decision essentially meant that payments from an Australian resident entity to another Australian resident entity may give rise to royalty withholding tax, which obviously is not the typical scenario that we see since royalty withholding tax usually arises on payments made from Australian entities to overseas entities. So Stokely, Van Camp and PepsiCo both had exclusive bottling agreements with Shreps Australia, which was an independent Australian bottling company. PepsiCo owns brands for carbonated drinks such as Pepsi and Mountain Dew, and Stokely Van Camp was the brand owner for non-carbonated drinks such as Gatorade. And under the agreement, the taxpayers sold beverage concentrate to Schweppes and granted Schweppes the right to use the Pepsi and Mountain Dew trademarks. However, no royalties were paid under the agreement and so no withholding tax was paid in Australia. And when the court looked at the agreements, the pricing for the concentrate was explicit. However, there was no price attached to the use of the trademarks under those agreements. And the way the arrangement worked was that during the relevant years being 2018 and 2019, a Singaporean entity, which was a member of the PepsiCo group, produced concentrate according to a recipe or formula provided by PepsiCo and Stokely Van Camp. The Singaporean entity then supplied the concentrate to PBS, which was a Pepsi entity in Australia. PBS then supplied the concentrate to Schweppes and Schweppes paid PBS for this concentrate. And this was the payment that the commissioner argued gave rise to the royalty withholding tax liability. The money received from Schweppes was transferred to the Singaporean Pepsi entity with PBS retaining only a very small margin. And so considering this arrangement, the commissioner had issued royalty withholding tax notices requiring the taxpayers to pay approximately 3.6 million in royalty withholding tax. And in the alternative, the commissioner issued DPT assessments imposing a tax liability of 28.9 million on the taxpayers. 
So that was the background to the case. The court essentially agreed with the commissioner and held that the taxpayers were liable to pay royalty withholding tax at a rate of 5%, and in the alternative, the DBT would apply. So I think the interesting part there is that the taxpayer effectively lost on royalty withholding tax, but won by not being liable for DPT and having an eightfold increase in their potential tax. But why don't you go through the the decision as to why it was a royalty and then we'll dig into some of the implications. In terms of determining whether there was a royalty withholding tax liability, the court decided that a portion of the payments made by Schweppes to PBS, the PepsiCo entity in Australia, were royalties as defined in the Tax Treaty and the Tax Act. And although PBS wasn't a party to the bottling arrangements, which they were only arrangements between PepsiCo in the US and Schweppes in Australia, the federal court held that the payments made by Schweppes were linked to the licence of PepsiCo's trademarks and IP. So without the trademarks and IP, Schweppes would not have been able to package and sell the beverages under PepsiCo and SVC brands. And it could be inferred that Schweppes may not have agreed to make the payments under the arrangements as well. And a failure by Schweppes to perform its payment obligations could have resulted in a termination of the agreement and therefore the license. And so having regard to this and looking at the business and commercial context of the agreements, the court looked beyond just the description of the payments in the EBAs and it concluded that the license of the trademarks and other IP was fundamental to the agreement and the payments were linked with the license of trademarks and other IP. And despite the payments being made from Schweppes to PBS, both being Australian entities, the court found that the payments were essentially income derived by and deemed to have been paid to PepsiCo and Stokely Van Camp in the US. And because PBS, the PepsiCo entity in Australia, was nominated as the seller of the concentrate under the bottling arrangements, the federal court held that this essentially constituted a direction to pay PBS rather than PepsiCo, and therefore the payments came home to PepsiCo and Stokely Van Camp by being applied as they directed. And I think the court's conclusion that the payments were income derived by entities other than entities which sold the concentrate seemed to rely on a very broad interpretation of the relevant concepts. Yeah, I think there's a couple of interesting concepts to unpack there. The first is Mashinsky's focus on what he called the business and commercial context of the EBAs was quite crucial in determining what was a royalty and simply not including any amount in respect of a royalty or even saying that no amount is payable in respect of a royalty is not going to be sufficient to get you out of royalty withholding tax. The second is this issue around who derived and who was beneficially entitled to the income. I think that seemed a fairly expansive view, as you mentioned, Geraldine. It's not immediately apparent how PepsiCo was entitled to that income, given it wasn't a party to that contract between the local supplier and and Schweppes. Ryan, any thoughts on that part? I think that's right. It's hard stepping back and looking at it to imagine that the judge wasn't influenced by the difference in tax outcomes under the DPT and royalty withholding tax limbs of the case. As, as you mentioned earlier, Toby, if the judge had found that there wasn't a royalty withholding tax liability here, as we'll come to in a minute, the conclusion was that the DPT would have applied and the tax liability would have been eight times higher and imposed at a rate substantially above the treaty rates that were applicable in this case. I think it's also interesting that, I mean, while the parties agreed there was an implied licence, in this case, it's not just that there was no royalty in the agreement between the entities, there wasn't even an express licence to use IP. 
And also there was an actual cross-border transaction between the PepsiCo foreign and Australian entities. But again, that's not the transaction that was alleged to include an express or implied licence for which a royalty was payable. It was this contract with the Schweppes entities in Australia. So as you said, an expansive view of the circumstances in which a royalty or royalty income is derived by a non-resident. One other factor that's of, of relevance and will be important to taxpayers going forward was the use of expert evidence in determining what the quantum of the royalty was. Both parties called their own expert witnesses. The PepsiCo party's expert, who was a forensic accountant with minimal experience valuing IP, considered four alternative methods, while the commissioner's expert, who was an IP consultant with extensive experience in valuing IP, adopted just two. And Mashinsky selected a methodology which was common to both parties of comparable license agreements to perform a benchmarking exercise. Mashinsky preferred the commissioner's expert due to his greater experience and for including certain agreements in his comparables. On that basis, he adopted a royalty rate of 5.88% of Schweppes' net revenue from sales of the relevant products rather than the 2.5% put forward by the PepsiCo expert. It's important to think when doing the transfer pricing analysis, who is the most credible expert you can. There's obviously going to be a great deal of difficulty in analysing what is a comparable price where you've got such a unique set of products and perhaps there's only really one comparable competitor in this field. Ryan, uh, why don't we look at the analysis in respect of uh, the application of the DPT? The DPT section of the judgment is actually relatively brief. I think this judgment was eagerly anticipated for some time because it was well known to be the first DPT case that was going to hit the courts. The conclusion on royalty withholding tax meant that DPT did not apply. And, and the reason for that is DPT requires a tax benefit. And relevantly here, the tax benefit would have been the absence of royalty withholding tax being imposed. The court did still consider the DPT issue as an alternative, and there were two counterfactuals that were put forward by the commissioner in relation to DPT. The first, which was accepted by the court, was that instead of being silent necessarily on IP licensing and not containing a royalty, there would be a statement in the contract that the amounts that were payable pursuant to the exclusive bottling agreement were for all property provided under the agreement rather than simply being for concentrate. And the second counterfactual, which the court didn't accept because they preferred the first, was that there would have been an express royalty payable for a license of IP. Once the factual was accepted, it's reasonably clear that had royalty withholding tax not been payable, there would have been a tax benefit for DPT purposes. And so the focus then moves to purpose. As people probably know, DPT has a lower purpose threshold than the standard general anti-avoidance rule in Part 4A. Um, Part 4A requires a sole or dominant purpose, but for DPT, the purpose is set at a principal purpose threshold, which has become increasingly common in more recent Australian legislation, but is not something that had been used regularly previously. So there is a paragraph in particular where Justice Mashinsky makes a finding that the expression principal purpose refers to a purpose that is prominent, leading or a main purpose. And there can be more than one such purpose. I don't think it really advances the concept much beyond what was in the AM, but it's a confirmation that the courts are going to read it in the way that Treasury intended. The analysis of purpose then runs through the, the relevant list of factors. I don't think there's any need to go through them here, save for two factors that I think are worth calling out. One is the, the outcome under the Act that would have been obtained, but for the scheme. And it seems interesting here, although it is consistent with authority, that 
the fact that royalty withholding tax in this world would not have been payable under the contract as drafted, but would have been payable had an express royalty or, or amendments to the contract been put through itself was neutral. And so the mere fact that there is a tax benefit doesn't necessarily influence the conclusion on purpose. The other thing is that what I think is the main factor relevant for the purpose conclusion here was the difference between substance and form in that Justice Mashinsky found the substance of the exclusive bottling arrangement was that it included a license of IP for which a royalty was paid being an amount that was wrapped up in the concentrate sales price, whereas the form of the agreement was quite different. It's interesting that, to me at least, that was the main factor, given that it flowed naturally from the counterfactual, in that once you accept that there is an agreement which includes an implied license and uh, an embedded royalty and the form of the agreement does not provide for an express license and an express royalty, then necessarily there'll be a divergence between form and substance on that basis. The conclusion and the analysis is relatively short in relation to DPT, and I think the more interesting aspect is what will happen on appeal if this case doesn't settle before the appeal's heard, because as we mentioned, a win on royalty withholding tax is not necessarily a win for the taxpayer. They need to also overturn the reasoning of Justice Mashinsky in relation to DPT, otherwise their win on royalty withholding tax will cost them substantially more tax going forward. Yes, even though the analysis by Mashinsky was relatively short, as you say, Ryan, it hasn't stopped the ATO describing the decision as a landmark case in relation to DPT. So let's break it down. The key takeaways. Geraldine. So as you mentioned earlier on, Toby, the ATO's ongoing focus on the cross-border intangible arrangements, the case would suggest that this will increase their scrutiny of such arrangements. Multinational entities operating in Australia under similar arrangements to PepsiCo um, can expect to face increased scrutiny. And as you mentioned, clients can have regard to the draft tax ruling TR2024 slash D1, which reflects the ATO's current draft views um, on when payments made in respect of software and intellectual property rights will be a royalty. And I think the other key takeaway from the case is that the courts seem to have expanded the approach to the characterization of royalties. So previous case law in IBM and task technology had emphasized that in determining whether payments are made are characterized as royalties, the courts in those cases interpreted the rights and obligations under the relevant agreement. However, in this decision, the federal court in indicates that when they consider whether a payment constitutes a royalty, it is necessary to look at the characterization of the relevant payments and the terms of the relevant agreements in their business and commercial context. And so the court also drew support from Section 6.1 of the 1936 Act, which defines royalty regardless of how the payments are described, and that Article 12, Subsection 4, also referred to payments of any kind, which I guess has assisted the court in concluding that the characterization of a royalty can be quite broad. Great. Thanks, Geraldine. Ryan, any thoughts? Yeah, probably a few to add. I think the most interesting aspect of the case is that royalty withholding tax was found to apply in relation to payments from one Australian entity to an unrelated second Australian entity. The case obviously did not include the ATO pursuing sweeps for failure to withhold, and I suspect that's because the Tax Admin Act generally only imposes withholding obligations for royalties that are made offshore or to a recipient with an offshore address, but uh, it does add some complexity to the administration and collection of withholding tax. Generally, 
it's collected by a withholding regime because it is difficult practically to collect tax owing from non-resident entities without a presence in Australia. So that that aspect is interesting. Obviously, it is the first decision in DPT. Perhaps it's not massively illuminating, but it does confirm the relatively low purpose threshold for DPT, so something to be aware of. I think the other thing that's perhaps slightly broader that the case draws out is the ATO's current focus on intangibles generally and embedded royalties more particularly. And in that context, I assume the ATO would have had it open to them to not run the royalty withholding tax argument in that uh, PepsiCo clearly was not arguing that royalty withholding tax applied. And so the ATO could have accepted that there was no royalty withholding tax and run its case purely on a DPT basis. But that's obviously contrary to a lot of the developments recently coming out from the ATO that are really focusing on embedded royalties being a thing and being something that the ATO is focused on. The fact that they were more interested in pursuing the embedded royalty argument than just pursuing a case under the DPT, I think illustrates how seriously people need to take the embedded royalty issue. Yes, it may, as you mentioned earlier, have as much to do with the ability to collect off a resident taxpayer and the ease of collecting royalty withholding tax on a a broader range of royalties and than had perhaps been previously understood. Uh, Now, one other interesting part of this case, I think, Geraldine, you mentioned that the taxpayer has appealed against the decision. But Ryan, uh, as I understand, the ATO has also appealed against the decision. Yeah, that's right. The ATO has filed a separate appeals notice. Not being a litigation procedure expert, I haven't fully gotten to the bottom of that. I suspect it may be because technically the ATO was unsuccessful on the DPT decision. And so perhaps felt the need to technically appeal rather than file a notice of contention. But certainly both parties are appealing, so it's certain that all issues are going to be fully ventilated on appeal, assuming there's no settlement before the appeal's heard. Yes, we'll keep a gimlet eye on this one. So that was most illuminating. We'll be back next month with another podcast. I think we've all been scarred by uh, having to do an update on thin capitalization, but we will get to that. But for now, thank you, everybody. Thanks, Geraldine. Thanks so much, Toby. Uh, thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Toby. Thanks, Geraldine. Okay. Thank you. And thanks for listening.